And so I'm trying to find within that a way to change the law as little as possible to enable research and scholarship to operate differently than the rest of intellectual property. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Welcome to episode two of the third season. Today, we're going to talk about copyright and open access. Is copyright really a broken promise? Our guest is going to tell us all about it. I am John Wolinski, um, so just introduce myself a little bit. Uh, I'm a Canadian by birth, um, but I'm working at Stanford University in California um, as a professor of education. I am uh, by trade a school teacher, really. I started out as a school teacher and I became uh, involved in education more formally as a preparer, someone who prepares teachers. Um, but I got very interested in intellectual property because of the research we were doing. Um, and so my professional background is in education and copyright has a great impact on education, in particular on what you can access and share and engage in uh, in terms of your learning, um, because copyright can be a form of restriction, uh, can limit access. So as a professor of education, um, for a good long time, I had no interest in copyright. And then suddenly I realized that all the research I was doing and all the research my colleagues were doing was not publicly available. It was locked up in academic libraries. And while the public could visit these libraries, it was a limited right. So I decided that if I was really committed, deeply committed to public education, I needed to do something about public access to the very work I and my colleagues at the university were doing. And we call that open access. We call this move to make research and scholarship freely available open access. Um, and it applies particularly to journal articles that we publish. It applies to academic books as well. Um, but it is has been a particular challenge for intellectual property because how do you respect copyright and how do you increase public access at the same time? Um, and part of this claim is that the public has a special right to research that they don't have to novels, to Netflix, to other forms of intellectual property. Um, and I'd be happy to talk about that. But how's that for an introduction? No, it's perfect. And it's, it's jumped right in with the with the understanding on what is open access and generally why do we need it? But um Is it only then for scientific research, open access? Yes, it's particularly scientific research or research and scholarship, historical research, all forms of research, because it only applies to research because the public has already paid for that work through public institutions like the universities, through research grants from national institutions, philanthropic support. Um, is another form in which the public has already paid for the research uh, and for its publication. So the public has a special claim to research and scholarship that it doesn't have to Disney movies, that it doesn't <laughs> have to Apple uh, products. It is a matter of 
a public right, if you like. The public has worked hard to pay taxes. Those taxes have gone to support research and scholarship. Therefore, open access, that is access specifically to research and scholarship, has a very basic claim to be made. But copyright does not respect that. Copyright makes no distinction uh, or a very, very limited distinction about research and scholarship. You have with fair use, for example, or fair dealing in the UK and Canada, you have a right to use work for research purposes, but it doesn't have a special category for research and scholarship. And that's my concern, because that's making it very hard to uh, make research openly available. Uh, The publishers use copyright to charge for subscriptions to journals to restrict access. And so how are we going to compensate those publishers for publishing great research under the current copyright regime? So I'm proposing changes. Open access is incompatible with copyright protection then? Current, it's not incompatible. There is a lot of open access in the world um, that operates with copyright. Copyright impedes open access. And I think it can support uh, and facilitate open access. It's not an impediment in the sense that anyone who holds a copyright can make their work freely available. They can place it in the public domain. They can put a Creative Commons license on it. But it's very hard to raise money for work that you put in the public domain or that you put a Creative Commons license. And we still need the money to pay the publishers who are doing a very good job of publishing the work. So copyright does not support anything financially except, or at least principally, in the form of subscriptions, expensive library subscriptions, or per article. With your credit card, Leticia, you can purchase an article. Uh, Copyright is perfect for that. It's not perfect for funding publishers to create open access, and that's why I'm proposing that copyright law be amended. So is it possible to provide open access and recognize the author's right? Absolutely. Of course, I wouldn't have gone this far or worked this hard if that wasn't the case. But it did take a while to kind of figure out. One thing you need to see with research and scholarship, the author's right is a right of access to other people's scholarship and a right of others to their scholarship. We cannot do scholarship unless unless others have a right to it. So it is in the author's interests to have as many people access and cite their work as possible. They do not make money from selling their work. They do, they're not paid for journal articles, for example. But they do promote their careers, or at least advance their careers, and they do gain recognition by through the use of their work by others. So anything that impedes that work, anything that makes it too expensive for others to access it in the global south, for example, is really against their rights, against their interests. So open access is weirdly situated in a way that in scholarship and research that makes it contrary to other authors' interests. Because a novelist wants very much that you can only read their work if you pay for it. That's their livelihood. A researcher wants very much for as many people as possible to use their work. And that's how their livelihood is provided by the universities. So the more people would reach the site or use their work, the better is for them. That's right. 
So they have, they are, and, re, and by the researchers are readers. So there's no difference. In order to do research, you need to read research. There's no contrast between the reader's interests and the author's interests when it's research. Um, but for other forms of copyright and other forms of intellectual property, this is not the case. And that's why we need a special category that recognizes that research and scholarship operates on a different economy, a different set of incentives, a different um, motivation. Uh, not the publishers are distinct. The publishers are still very interested in raising as much money as they can from their publications, but the authors and copyright law is based on author and authorship. Um, the Berne Convention is very much centered uh, on the rights of the author. Now, the copyright holder makes it a little complicated because the publisher is often the copyright holder and not the author. But the author is considered to be the natural owner of the copyright and the author turns that right over to publishers. So we still have a, uh, a right centered uh, law and an author centered law. And so I'm trying to find within that a way to change the law as little as possible to enable research and scholarship to operate differently than the rest of intellectual property. Makes perfect sense. And I, I can see the the, the benefits, uh, the great benefits that that would entail, not only for the researchers, but also for the general public that they wish to learn, understand certain topics. It will be a great service for them to be able to read any research uh, conducted anywhere in the world. But with that, with that openness, there's also risks. Is the risk of open access greater than the benefit? Can too much information lead to misinformation, especially the era that we live in right now? <laughs> yes, we, we have a plague of misinformation. I, I totally agree. It's a pandemic, a second pandemic of misinformation, I know. And there's no vaccine at this point. But let me explain a little bit before that, before we get to that point, because there's one thing that you need to press me on. How will the publishers be compensated? Um, because we have the two sides of the question. We, we understand the author. Open access is such a boon to the author, to the researcher, not to the novelist, not to the poet, but to the researcher. Um, but it's not a boon for the publisher unless there's a way for the publisher to be fairly compensated. So what I'm proposing, just in a nutshell, is that we use the same principles that we use with music. Uh, music in the, in, around the world is governed by what's called statutory licensing or compulsory licensing. So it means that anyone, any radio station, any singer can use the music, but they are compelled to pay for it. So they must pay, um, but the artist can't restrict who, does, who uses the music. Uh, so Beyonce cannot say, uh, John Walensky, you cannot sing my song because you sing so terribly bad. Uh, no, I can pay the license fee to Beyonce and I can sing it as well as I can. I'll get better with time. Okay. But, but right. I understand her concerns. So what I want to do with research, and this applies to music across the board. So it, it, music is a separate category in copyright law. Research is not. I want to create a special category for research publications. That is only research that has been published in a scholarly way with peer review. So there's some checks around misinformation, but, but wait, we're going to get to that in a moment. So if it is a research publication, and we're very good at identifying research publications, every academic librarian's life is based on identifying what are the good research publications, what are the proper research publications for their library. So there's no problem there. We're going to create a, a statutory license that says 
that if you are a publisher of research publications, you will be fairly compensated by the principal users, the main users, which are academic libraries today, that's true, and research funders, all the agencies that pay money to have the research conducted and published. So those groups are already paying, but they're paying for this currently restricted access that only they have access to. But they need that research, and so they would be willing to pay if it was open and public. They cannot operate without that research, and it doesn't hurt them if everyone has access. In fact, it helps them because the public says, this research is so good, I'm going to support, with my taxes, the universities. I'm going to elect a government that supports research because I have access to it now, and my children have access to it, and my parents have access. So the compulsory license or the statutory license, I I like statutory better because compulsory sounds kind of punitive and uh, restrictive. So statutory licensing says that if it's a research publication, the research libraries and funders would need to fairly pay, not overpay, but fairly pay. And, And with music, judges decide how much Beyonce gets. Beyonce doesn't decide, even though she doesn't like me singing her music. I have to pay her, but she doesn't decide how much. There are copyright judges, a panel of three in the United States, who decide how much is fair, even though they won't listen to me, my music, I mean, they'll listen to me in terms of buying a license, but they won't listen to my music. I am actually in a band. Um, but anyway, let's not go there. Ah, we can ask, <laughs> we can, I'll ask you later. <laughs> but what I, I want to point out is that with research, we will fairly compensate the publishers for all of the research, but only under the law because they're going to make it immediately open to everyone in the world. So the libraries get what they want. The publishers get what they want. Do the researchers get what they want? Yes. Leticia is nodding, for those of you in the podcast. (laughs) Uh, Yes, they do get what they want because they have many more readers. One of the great things about open access, it is huge. It hugely creates, uh, sorry, hugely expands the number of readers. We've seen 800% increases when a journal goes from closed to open. This is the annual review of public health. When in one day, it went from closed the day before to open the next day. And within months, an 800% increase in readers around the world. So it's a very dramatic aspect. So statutory licensing is a, an approach that's worked in the music industry since 1909. So well over 100 years. Now, Some musicians don't think they get enough money. So I'm not. And some musicians think Beyonce gets too much money. But (laughs) I'm not saying it's perfect. And by the way, this musician that you're talking to isn't getting very much money at all (laughs) as a musician. So so we're not saying this is the best of all worlds. We're saying that this is a better approach for music and for research. And it has been proven in the music field. And I think that's a warrant to try it in the field of research and literature. So are we clear on how publishers and researchers and the public are satisfied? Then I'll go on to the misinformation. Yes, I can see the benefits for the three of them. Uh, So tell us what is the problem or what could be the problem? (laughs) Well, the the problem is changing the law. That's never an easy easy element. Legal reform, legislative reform is a very challenging area and very serious. And I take it very seriously in terms of what it will take. I need to build a very strong base of support 
There is agreement, and this is a very important part of that. There is agreement among the scholarly publishers, among the research librarians, among the researchers and scholars, among the government and funding agencies that open access is the very best way to do research and scholarship. An agreement. It took 20 years, 30 years. But in the last five or seven years, and the pandemic helped tremendously and didn't help. I mean, it destroyed and was uh, a tragic story in many ways. But what it demonstrated is that open science is the best way to treat urgent concerning issues and threats to humanity. And the open science demonstration of the pandemic has further convinced people that open access is what we need because the pandemic is not the only threat we're facing. There's climate change, there are other elements. So there is a recognition that open access is the right way to do science. So no question there. That's a good starting point for changing the law. But there's not an agreement yet on what's the best way to get to open access. And in the United States, the Constitution, and remember, I am a Canadian, so it's, it's my duty and my pleasure to dictate, to lecture Americans on their constitution. <laughs> so the U.S. Constitution it talks about the, the principle behind copyright is to promote the progress of science. And that's why I say it's a broken promise, because right now, we know what's best to promote the progress of science, which is open access. We have an agreement for the first time among all the stakeholders that open access promotes the progress of science and copyright is not doing that. It's not blocking it, but it's not promoting it. So we need to change the law and how I will be able to and, and others will be able to convince uh, the legislators, the um, librarians and everyone else that this is the best way to go to open access. That's the challenge in front of me. The book is just being published this summer in, in 2022. Um, and so I still have a lot of work ahead of me. I'm not underestimating that. But I think and hope that just bringing up this argument, someone may have a better idea, a better approach, but we need to keep these ideas coming. And so I put mine down as a challenge. I put this book down. Well, I don't have it yet, but when I have this book, <laughs> I slam it onto the table and say, here's the challenge. Here's one way that we can move to open access that we all agree is the right way to go. But we haven't agreed on the method. We've agreed in principle, but not in practice. And you show me a better way, because if you show me a better way, you've got my support. Because my goal is universal open access for all of humanity to all of the research produced all over the world. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. So if you were to redact the amendment to the U.S. Copyright Act, <laughs> how would it read? So it, it would read, it would have a, a number of small changes. One would be under the types of works. We, in the United States, we recognize pantomime as a legal category, and we don't recognize research. Now, I agree, pantomime, of course, is more important than research. I understand that. That's clearly an important American principle. <laughs> Marcel Marceau deserves that kind of legal recognition. It was actually a mistake in the law. It was really meant to protect silent movies. And, and it was a mistranslation from the French uh, uh, on pantomime. So it was any rate. So if the U.S. law can recognize pantomime, 
it, it can recognize research. So that's the first thing. It, it can be added to a list. There are other things. There are architectural drawings on that list. There's uh, drama on the list. There's literary text on that list. But there's nothing for research. Research is considered to be part of a literary text. And it's true. It is you know text, but it's not no special category. So that's the first step. The second step is to introduce a series of clauses. It's quite complicated. I don't want to wait for the book, I could say to you, that there's actually a, maybe you'll put this up on your podcast. There's a, there's a link to a draft. So people can start looking at it right away. And I go into the details. They're very similar. And one of the reasons I'm encouraged is they're very similar to music. So the United States government, which has been uh, a site of consternation and struggle, a site of polarization and division in Congress, came together in 2018 for the Music Modernization Act and voted unanimously. One of the very few, if not the only piece of legislation that had unanimous support in 2018. And that law is a model for what I'm proposing. I don't expect unanimity, but it does mean that the U.S. government, the Congress in particular, uh, can come together and can make decisions. That aspect of, of how the law changes, that's only United States, though. And so what about the rest of the world? Um, let's go back to Beyonce. Beyonce's music is often heard in restaurants and airports around the world. I don't know if you've had that experience. And that's because we have a number of international agreements, um, which I, again, we don't need to go into all the details of, but we have international agreements that mean that changes in American law for music in particular are accepted uh, and recognized internationally. Just as changes in European law in any of the European Union or any of the uh, states are recognized in the United States, they're reciprocal agreements that we have in this regard. And the Berne Convention is, is one of those. So there would be uh, once the but we need a legislative change to begin with. And that so once the American law is changed, if the American law, I shouldn't assume once it's changed, that's too presumptive. It's more the case if and when. The American law is changed. Then we have uh, WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. We have the TRIPS Agreement. We have a number of accords by which there is a recognition. So all of the governments don't have to change their law because they will recognize the American law. But many of them may begin to do that because we've seen this in other instances. When intellectual property changes, everyone recognizes that intellectual property is an international phenomenon, not a national phenomenon. Uh, and so there are both international accords and there is a harmonization. The European Union is harmonizing its intellectual property laws. Even though there's an agreement to respect each other's laws, they are still moving toward a common law. And although the union is a very special case, it's a good example uh, of harmonization. So I would expect the following. The United States changes, not overnight, but the United States amends its law. The international agreements discuss how to recognize that. And a slow, gradual process of harmonization begins to take place, which will take decades. The Berne Convention, the United States did not join the, the Berne Convention for uh, 80 odd years, perhaps. It didn't join till 86 or so, 1986. So this, this process um, will be slow, but it can begin with a single state. So it will begin with research publication as a category and with a special provisions and a special exceptions for yes. this kind of uh, work. And pet and, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, of course. But it's very important. And one would think that pantomime, when I think about pantomime, I think about France, actually. I think about the typical stripes and the hat. Yeah, <laughs> Marceau made it very famous. Yes. Yes. It, when it was a French, it was a mistake with regard to that. <laughs> it, it had nothing to do with pantomimes. It was a mistake in language. I, I understand that because, well, uh, where I'm from, I'm from the Dominican Republic. We took our laws from Haiti and Haiti took them from France. And most of our laws are still in force today. They are translation of the Napoleon codes. So there are very interesting things there that have nothing to do with reality, but it's still there. <laughs> yes, the law is a, a sleeping giant. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. But we're going to we're going to wake uh, at least some part of that giant with this. I hope. Can I uh, can I go back to the misinformation question? Yes, of course. That's that's the 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 pending part that we have now. So the harm that this openness can can cause. There are examples, and I am prepared to deal with them. The masking. Uh, there was a professor at Stanford University, where I work, uh, Scott Atlas, uh, who during the, pan- the height of the pandemic, we're not over it yet, but during the height of the pandemic, was recognized um, as, a, as a so-called medical authority. And he was. He was a, a radiologist at, at, uh, here at Stanford. But he would latch on to studies that, uh, on masking that would make it look like masks were ineffective. And he would quote research where the masks did not demonstrate a particularly strong effect uh, in terms of preventative process. Um, And he was using research, public research, publicly available research to what I would say threaten or cause harm to the public. So there is a danger in that regard. Now, he was addressed and the limits and misinformation he was spreading was highly contested. And people brought forward a great number of other studies um, because no one study is ever satisfactory, brought forward the weight of other studies to not defeat, but to at least counter that misinformation. So I want to say that open access is not a guarantee against misuse of information. We need to not just make it open. We need to educate. We need to be vigilant. We need to be recognized that scientists and researchers disagree We need to know that sometimes a result is so far ahead of everything else, we can't be sure. We need multiple studies to gain reassurance or gain assurance, rather. So this idea about misinformation is twofold. One is there is a risk, but the risk, I think, is greatly outweighed by the benefits. And that is we have a reliable source, not a guaranteed source, not a perfect source, but a reliable source. And that reliable source is no single study. The reliable source is the marketplace of ideas, as John Stuart Mill called it, but it's more like an information flow. And we have a responsibility, and that is we need to make this work open and part of the public discourse, and we need to educate students, faculty, teachers about how to use it, how to read it, how to trust it, how to know what's different about research than about a tweet or a social media blast of whatever form. So that aspect, um, and I'm an educator, remember, I'm a professor of education, a school teacher. So part of this work is to go into high school classes and ask high school students about how they understand research. Do they see that research is a different kind of information? How do they know how to trust research? And there are uh, people who misuse research, who publish results that turn out to be false and fraudulent. 
Um, and so, again, it's not perfect. And, and scientists and researchers are susceptible to corruption and, and other forces as anyone else. So, there ha- so we have to be cautious about this. But overall, the benefit of not having any research compared to having all of the research, there are risks, but the benefits much uh, greatly outweigh, I would argue. In today's world where opinions are treated as facts, um, people treat opinions and they give them, I'm not saying that, okay, we all have uh, the freedom to speech and to uh, say whatever we regard as true, but that doesn't mean that it has to be taken as a fact or it has to be taken as uh, this is something that is, it cannot be counter or it cannot be argued because it's my opinion. This is what I say. This has to be the universal truth, which is something that we all know that it doesn't exist. So it's, it's about teaching um, how to understand research and providing the research itself. So by understanding, analyzing, reading it, it would provide you with the tools that, that you need to make sure that what you're reading is reliable or how to Uh, find out the reliability of certain research by reading more or reading uh, also the the counter research of that one and to to make to to see which which points are in in harmony and which ones are not no that's exactly right so it's not we can't teach students to understand all research that would be to understand everything but we can teach students what it is about research that makes it somewhat more or not somewhat makes it considerably more trustworthy We can teach them about peer review processes. We can teach them about editorial oversight by experts. We can teach them about retraction notices. We can teach them about open data where the data is shared and replication of studies. We can teach them about funding and the corrupting forces sometimes that funding can provide. The American Tobacco Federation is there are a number of organizations that are famous for corrupting research through funding. So we can teach them a number of the markers by which they can begin to trust and begin to learn and, and, and inquire without having to be an expert in every field of every aspect of research. Um, so, yes. But again, this this idea, I think, is important as well, that we the scientists are not anything but other human beings. And we are not trying to create um, a uh, an autocracy of scientists or we're not trying to create elevate them they are one source of opinion but they do provide uh an opinions but they do provide a different order of information which the government and the public have paid for and it is a self-governing body in, in terms of the rules and standards of scholarly behavior uh, with some legal implications occasionally but generally it is self-governing Uh, and it has not been publicly present until this digital age. And so one of the things we're looking at is this huge influx of information that was not previously publicly available. We're talking millions of articles a year that are par- potentially part of public discourse that previously were not. They were in libraries, but who went to those libraries? They were in print, but who was able to pay for the parking to go in the library to read them? all these different aspects. So really as an educator, which is ultimately my career and my work, um, this is a very exciting change. This is a historic change in the access to knowledge that the public has. Researchers have had consistently access. The public 
has consistently not had access. The United States, the New York Public Library, the one branch, uh, Schwartzman branch in, in, at 42nd Street, is a research library, but it is so special. There's like one in New York and there's maybe another in Chicago. So very limited public access to research. And this is about to change. We're about 30 percent, just to give people a sense of where we are, about 30 percent of the research today, um, close to a third, let's say, very roughly, is publicly available. It's already been made free. It's already open access. Uh, new research is more. It's about 50 percent of current research is already publicly accessible. But even that, to me, is not enough. You can't go to a doctor and say, I've got this terrible condition can you get some research on it? The doctor says, well, I have a one in three chance of being able to look at the research. If I can, if your disease or your condition or the studies that are pertinent to your condition happen to be free, there's a one in three chance, which is pretty good, but it's not good enough. It should be universal. It's not a chance that you want. You don't want your doctor saying to you. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry. I cannot, I cannot help you because uh, I don't have the information at hand. We, we have done studies with doctors on this, and we have found that doctors feel that the price of an article, $50, $40, is prohibitive. Um, and so they are not, uh, as a rule, they're not paying for this research. Doctors do not have access, except in university hospitals, where, of course, they're part of the university. Um, and we found that uh, not every doctor was interested in research when we gave them free. We did an experiment where we gave them free access for a year. Um, but about a third of the doctors went in about once a week to look at an article and they felt it made a very large difference. And when we ended the experiment, they complained to us. They said uh. it was like a drug that we had cut off. They were going through withdrawal symptoms from having access to the knowledge. And could we extend it? And we were not allowed to extend it. And but we use this information to do a better job of persuading people that open access is a human right. So they were very keen on, on having the, the research at hand and, and it, they got used to it. They got used to it. <laughs> a, a, a small proportion. So two thirds of the doctors forgot to look, didn't. Look. OK, I don't I don't want to exaggerate it, but that was without any education. That was without any promotion. That was without any expectation. Once we gain this universal open access, it'll become part of medical education. It'll become and part of every doctor's expectation. As it a will right. become a, a habit, too, as well, because that's something also that waits on how you work and how you operate. When you have the habit of always uh, making sure that what you remember It's exactly what the research says, or there's something new development on this that you would like to know. So you have the habit to check just in case. That's something also that uh, waits on. It is, it is such a better habit than the doctor with a cigarette smoking and saying, <laughs> <"He's>, <laughs> this is a healthy practice. <laughs> yes. For sure. For sure. <laughs> okay. So, uh, well, thank you so much. It's, it has been a, a great conversation and, and a And I do see the, the great benefits of open access and how we can work with copyrights and how we can make it sure that it's for the general public benefit, but also for the authors, for the publisher, for everyone involved in this, in this publication and in this specific type of work, which is research publications. The book is coming up in the summer. 
Uh, the title again is Copyrights Book Broken Promise, How to Restore the Law's Ability to Promote the Progress of Science. Uh, so MIT Press will make uh -huh. it freely available because the libraries have already agreed to buy, to pay for the book. So this is a good example of open access. So the libraries say we want the book and we're happy to have it made freely available. So when it comes out this summer or early fall, it will be freely, it will be available on Amazon. You can buy it with a nice cover, um, but it will also be freely available at MIT Press. That's perfect. So you are walking the walk. <laughs> <laughs> I should hope so. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. That's great to know. So it's open access about open access. So that's that's a great uh, that's that's a that's a great endeavor. So thank you so much for for um, this feature and 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 thank you for the time and for the interview as well. It has been a pleasure talking uh, with you and. Yeah, just uh, keep in touch and let us know what, what uh, any other developments that you have that we can also discuss again in the podcast. Okay, Leticia, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, and yes, uh, next book, perhaps, I, I'll drop in. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> we have reached the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only.